Father, we commit our time in the Word together to You. We thank You in advance for the wisdom, for the clarity, for the power of Your Word to guide us, to strengthen us, to breathe new life into us, Lord. May it do its work. May we humble our hearts to receive what You have for us this morning from the book of Daniel. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We will continue our study in chapter 1, get through the rest of this, this narrative, Daniel's first test, a sermon we have titled, A Hill to Diet On, pertaining to this food, these king's delicacies from the storehouse of King Nebuchadnezzar offered to those who would be trained to serve in his court. That is our context. So we find ourselves, let's read from verse 8, Daniel chapter 1. We will read all the way to the end of the chapter. Please follow along. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So we're getting a really uh, big historical overview of Daniel's service that goes all the way to the first Persian or Medo-Persian king. And so just by way of review to kind of uh, address the various themes that we we are um, going over in this text, we, we kind of broke it down last Lord's Day. We sort of just served as an introduction, but we want to expand on some of these things. But just to lay the groundwork once again, we are talking about a hill to diet on. And first of all, we talked about the there's the horizontal view of this text and then there's the vertical view. That's very important to keep in mind. Otherwise, the text will be difficult to understand and apply. But from the vertical point of view, we see that God is building His house. Right? 
we have to keep underscoring this point that even though God is, as it were, in exile, He is no longer dwelling in the temple. He is with His people in exile. <coughs> so we know He has not abandoned them completely, even though they are under His discipline, severe discipline, by being removed to a foreign nation. It is not preventing God from building His house. It is not preventing God from building His temple. And we would say building His temple in a new way. So that's the first thing. God is being strategic. God knows exactly what He's doing. God is not limited by being in a pagan nation. God is not helpless. God does not need anybody's help. And God's purposes continue exactly as He has intended. And He will build His kingdom. In fact, this is, this is a very significant uh, turn in the development of God's kingdom because of all that He will reveal concerning His work in Christ. And remember, the Gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed not only to Jews, but also to Gentiles. So we get a lot of insight regarding God's worldwide endeavor to bring His kingdom to bear to all nations. That every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the purpose of all of this. And Daniel plays very heavily into that theme. And we don't want to miss that because typically what I just said, we connect more to the New Testament than we do to the Old. And yet Daniel ends up being a very significant uh, uh, starting point in revealing what the Lord will do with Jesus Christ and His work. So God is building His house. And of course, now this side of the cross, uh, via First Peter, we find out that we are a royal priesthood. right? We are a chosen race. We are living stones composing the building of God's holy household. So that's the first thing. That's the vertical view of Daniel. Secondly, is the horizontal view. Sort of ground level. What do we see in the life of Daniel and his friends? Daniel as a man. Daniel regarding the resolve that he shows in the face of potential severe persecution. We talked about how this is a situation, and of course Daniel and his friends will face this situation uh, more than once, where their very life is on the line. They are defying the king. They are telling the king no when it comes to taking his delicacies. So what is happening here is we are getting a view of the characteristics of true resolve. And we understand that people can resolve themselves to all kinds of causes. People can make resolutions. Resolutions aren't good in and of themselves. The point here is to resolve ourselves to what God desires. To resolve ourselves to things pertaining to God and His righteousness and His purposes. Otherwise, we get off... I mean, who's to say what a good resolve is or is not? And people can resolve themselves to the stupidest things. We can join the most absurd causes. Oh, but because we're resolved, because we're purposeful, it must be good. And Scripture says no. We want to align our purposes with God's purposes. And this is exactly what Daniel does here. His cause is the kingdom of God. Our cause is also the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we broke this down. We, we introduced five characteristics, and as I've said, I, I introduced them at the beginning because I believe that they are woven throughout this passage. So if you haven't written them down, please do so. First of all, true resolve is concerned with God's holiness. And we really emphasized that theme last Lord's Day. 
Daniel made up his mind, verse 8, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He was concerned about God's holiness, meaning he wanted to continue to serve the Lord with integrity, with faithfulness. He did not want to be estranged from serving the Lord because he defiled himself. So first and foremost, resolve is concerned with God's holiness. Again, not your own personal agenda, not some private hidden cause that's above scrutiny, but with God's holiness. We are most concerned with God's character. That His glory will be put on display. That His purposes will be made clear. That is the resolve we are after. Secondly, of course, is that our resolve is anchored in God's power. Our resolve is never to be detached from the might and strength of our God. It's never to be anchored in self. This strength is never to come from the inside. It comes from outside. From God. And it is anchored there. It is, we want to understand that any resolve is fixed in the power of God. Otherwise, any resolution we have is completely neutered. It's stripped of its strength. And we will see that theme as we, as we move on. We find that God gives things by His grace. He delivers things to Daniel and for Daniel. And so we come to the third one. True resolve is preserved by God's grace. You realize in your own life, if God were not gracious, your resolve would fail. Because many times, resolve is an enduring thing. Resolve isn't something that we turn on and turn off. It is a characteristic of the Christian that is abiding, that even, that even grows in its strength and endurance. But what is that without God's grace? If God is not supplying everything we need to uphold that resolve, then what is it all for? We need God's grace. When we, when we, uh, resolve anything and then succeed, right? We come through when we are, when our heart is tried, right? And we come forth with integrity intact. We can only say it is by God's grace and grace alone that we are able to, to fix ourselves on His grace during that trial. No different from Daniel. Fourthly, is that true resolve endures in its fruitfulness. And we talked about last week that it will, it will not always look the same, right? We emphasized how in some times, in some ways, in some manners, to, to, to endure in your resolve may mean death. It may mean the worst kind of persecution and rejection. And yet it doesn't change the fact that God's righteousness will put on display, meaning that resolve, if anchored by God's power, preserved by His grace, and concerned with God's holiness, it will be fruitful. We may not even see that fruit in abundant amount. Sometimes the fruit comes later. But we can rest assured that when we fix our hope on the Gospel, when we, when we trust in God to preserve us through a trial, there will be fruit. We have to understand that because that comes from God's promises. Fruit will be cultivated. Fruit will be made manifest. Part and parcel of being a Christian, right? Read Galatians 5, 20 through 26. Talks all about the fruit of the Spirit and just goes down the list. We are called to be fruitful. Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John that they did not choose him, he chose them to go and bear much fruit, and that that fruit would remain. That's key. It's not a fruit that would somehow fall or rot off the vine. A fruit that would 
that would remain and multiply so that God's grace and power would be obvious. Fifthly and finally, true resolve is, you could say it's rooted or it trusts in the promises of God. It takes God at His Word. So think of these things as they pop up in this narrative. All of them are in view, many of them more than once. We'll see this theme. But lastly, this true resolve is rooted in the promises of God. It trusts God's Word. Right? That's, that's our authority. Where do, where, do we, where do we read the promises of God? We read them in His Word. And we have to look at the life of Daniel and his friends and say, doubtless, doubtless, it is beyond debate that they knew the Word of God and trusted in His promises, and so should we. And so those are the themes that are interwoven throughout this passage. So coming back to our text, I think we can just kind of move right through it. So first we saw Daniel's resolve. Right, He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And so what did he do? He sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So he actually did take it up with the representative of King Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember, his first and foremost, he was concerned with the holiness of God. He did not want to defile himself. He didn't want to be unfit for service. And of course, where was the source of that defilement? It was from the fact that it came from Nebuchadnezzar's stores. And so the main, uh, the main interpretation of this where we landed our plane was it wasn't so much that this food had been sacrificed to idols. The text wouldn't say that. However, if Daniel had proceeded with taking the king's delicacies, it would amount to paganism. It would amount to a kind of idolatry. But I think the main thing in view is that by not drinking the king's choice wine, by not eating of the king's delicacies, he was declaring publicly that he would not fellowship with the king. He would not become one with Nebuchadnezzar's cause. He would not depend on the king. And to eat his food would be to confirm fellowship, oneness, dependence, and ultimate loyalty. That's key. Because that's the test. Will Daniel be Belteshazzar or will he be Daniel? Will he be loyal to Yahweh or will he buckle and be dependent upon the king and therefore become holy Babylonian? And of course, that would surely disqualify them for service. They would be in effect trying to serve two masters. And they would be completely swallowed up by the pagan way of Babylon and so forsake their given Hebrew names and embrace Babylonian names. And we would say right here, this is a hill to die on. And we have to be discerning. You know, we can't, we can't go over every single issue, but this is a certain call for wisdom that the Christian is not called to die on every hill. But when it comes to fellowship, when it comes to oneness, when it, be, when it comes to unity, we have to be very, very discerning as to who we lock arms with. I mean, even Paul says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And this is what's in view here. This is, this is to expose alliances. This is to expose unity. This is ex to expose also your very identity. Who is Daniel going to identify with? Is he going to continue to identify with his God? Or is he going to identify with this King Nebuchadnezzar? This is a hill to die on. This is a hill to die on for anyone. When, so, when, we are, when we are 
faced with a situation where we are called to make a stand concerning who is the ultimate in our lives. Who are we dependent on? Who are we one with? Who do we say that we fellowship with? That is fellowship. You think about the New Testament expression of that. To do life with. To live a common life with. Where do our ultimate loyalties lie? Those are hills, those are hills to die on. So we can at least say that. And of course, we face that exact same challenge today. Who, who do we partner with? Who are we dependent on? And I hope that our answer is God. God Himself. Another thing that we have to take into consideration is how Daniel and his friends identified the nature of their service. Their refusal not only to drink of the king's delicacies, but also their refusal to drink in his wine. And I think that at bare minimum exposes Daniel and his friends as servants, as priests. They are not ready to sit down yet at the table of the king. And even in the law of Moses, in Leviticus, the priests were not to drink wine while they served. So I think that gives us insight into how uh, Daniel and his friends reckoned their position serving in Babylon. Leviticus 10 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. (laughs) Pretty serious. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. So you, you can link this to Daniel's purpose. He doesn't want to be unclean. He doesn't want to defile himself and be cut off. And, verse 11, so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord had spoken to them through Moses. So once again, we cannot miss that. Now, we move on in the text, and it says, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander and the officials. So here's another theme. We've talked about the being preserved by God's grace. Here we see that in view says that God granted Daniel. Now, it wasn't, note, note this, because a lot of us like to rely on our charm, right? On, on, our, on our smoothness of speech. Some of you really like to rely on your dashing good looks, whoever you are out there. And yet we see that this is by God's grace. God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And friends, we have to realize that. And I think this is something that we need to be in constant prayer about. Whenever we're in a situation like this where we have to answer to somebody, and most of us face that. Most of us are in someone's employ. You know, we're, we're in, many of us are employees. We at least answer to someone. How often is it that you resolve in your heart to pray? You know they may be a complete pagan. They may hate the God you serve, and by extension, they hate you, but you understand something that they don't. You, you understand that the heart of a man is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He can turn their heart whatever way he wishes. He can grant you favor in their sight. Because it's God. He's in charge, right? You may find yourself metaphorically in a type of Babylon. And don't let that be lost on you. The necessity of asking God to grant you favor in the eyes of your fellow employees, of your employer, whoever, whoever that person in authority over you may be. Ask God for favor. Understand that He is the one who is able to grant you favor and compassion in the sight of others. 
some key words here. When we look at favor, this is not the word we understand for grace. You know, when we define grace in the English language, we typically define it as God's unmerited love and favor toward people. But this is actually the Hebrew word hesed, which is a covenantal term. I think it's very key here. Because hesed is a word that has time built itself, has time itself built into it. Hesed is usually uh, translated in your Bible as loving kindness, but the meaning is loyal love, an abiding loyal love. And I think that's what's interesting about here is you have this Babylonian, and even the Lord moves in his heart to grant Daniel loyal love. I mean, this man's loyalty, you think about it, he, he's supposed to have loyalty toward the king. But God opens his heart to have a loyal love toward Daniel, to give him favor, to give him compassion. So we already see here, here's this other theme of power. But the hand of God is already toward Daniel. It's for Daniel in a supernatural way. So we can see how Daniel is able to retain his resolve. He has favor. This is one of the the words most commonly used to describe God Himself and His covenantal love and goodness toward Israel is Hesed. Loyal love. The Lord is abounding in loving kindness. This word is used when the Lord reveals Himself on, on, on the mountain to Moses when He passes by. One of the descriptors He gives Himself is abounding in Hesed. My love is loyal. My love is enduring. And so it's not that God has granted Daniel some generic kind of grace or favor. It's not that this man is inclined to be nice to Daniel. This man is inclined to bend his loyalties to Daniel and to show him great favor. And also, compassion, verse 9 says, compassion speaks to the bowels or even a, wo- even a womb. But this man's very heart was inclined toward Daniel. It's like, how do you suppose that that is happening? And it's not because Daniel is so charming or wise or insightful or helpful, it's because God grants him that favor. And we can't underscore that enough that for us to to retain our true godly resolve in a pagan and unregenerate society, in a culture that is desperate to be transformed by the Gospel, we have to know that it is by God's grace and God's grace alone. Not from us. God grants the favor. We don't conjure up our own favor. We don't try to be a man pleaser. We die, that is, we don't suck up. We're not disingenuous toward people. We be we conduct ourselves soberly and righteously and godly in this present world and submit to God for the rest, counting on his grace and goodwill toward his people. Then moving on in verse 10, and the commander of the officials said to Daniel, "I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink." So we see a little bit of conflict here, a little bit of inner conflict, even though this man is inclined to be loyal, to be compassionate to Daniel, to take his, his plight into consideration, he is afraid. We talked about the hothead Nebuchadnezzar last Lord's Day. He says, I'm afraid of my king. He, it's, it's his word, and I'm helping you defy the king's word. He says, and, and, and he believes that he knows what's going to happen. He has a high opinion of the king's delicacies. We have to imagine that it's not as if he's feeding them Skittles and Pop Rocks. This is, this is good stuff. This is most likely food that would fatten them up, that would make them strong and able. And he says, but this is the good stuff, so why should you say no? Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths 
who are your own age. And then he says, ah, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. So this is a classic display of fear of man. All of us struggle with this. Unbelievers especially. But this, I mean, you want to talk about a, a, a major indicator of unbelief or just unbelieving conduct. A lack of trust in God is instead of fearing God, we simply fear men. We all, we're, we're, we're conjuring up in our own minds the multiplicity of ways of the things that man can do to us. And that's what the psalmist asks. What can man do to me? Why should I be afraid? The Lord is my strength. And yet here we go. We face this temptation all the time to fear men. Oh, I can't say this. I can't do this. I can't stand my ground. What will that person think? I don't want to be too Christian in the workplace. They may think I'm some kind of fanatic. You know what? Let them think what they're going to think. Most unbelievers think that your most basic Christian, especially in American society, especially when you start to veer left, we're all fanatics. We're all, we're all ready to get violent. Right? That's their view of us. Let them think that. Let them think that. Wisdom is justified by your children. We, we are to continue to be salt and light, to seek the welfare of our city, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, and trust God that He will take care of us. That His purposes will be fulfilled. We are not called to fear men. Yet here's what the commander of the officials says. I am afraid of my Lord, the King, because this stuff comes from Him. Why should you make me forfeit my head? Right? He fears man more than He fears the Lord. He is concerned about self preservation. What are you doing to me, Daniel? I like you enough. I'm loyal to you, but what are you doing? Why are you putting us all in danger? And it's worth repeating that the man who has true resolve, the man who truly has trust in God, has it to such a degree as Daniel here that he's willing to not only put his own life on the line, but he is able to put other people's life on the line too. He's like, he trusts God. He trusts God. So so he's like, sure, let's not fear man, let's fear God. And that's something, once again, those who do not trust in Christ do not understand. That, is lo- that, that trust is lost on them. They don't understand the beauty and the goodness of trusting God. Interesting thing in the news, I meant to talk about this last week, but it was delayed, so it's old news, I guess. But most of you are familiar with Bill Maher, the classic liberal atheist, um, one, of, one of the most well-known scoffers and denouncers of Christianity. But he was talking about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who it's reported that he is, he is a believer. And he has even said, you know, you want to know what I believe? You want to know what I want for this country? I'm paraphrasing, of course. Go look in the Bible. Right. So here you go. Bill Maher had this to say. When you're this much of a religious fanatic, there is no room for real democracy. That's not what you believe in. He said it today. Look in the Bible. That's my worldview. He's quoting what speaker, new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, said. So look in the Bible, that's my worldview, equals religious fanatic. As if no goodness for society could possibly spring forth from applying a consistent, fully orbed Christian worldview. Mar went on to say, and I was reading about this horrible shooting in Maine, and you know, we don't know much about the guy yet, but apparently he heard voices, and I thought, is he that different than Mike Johnson? I mean, the ignorance here is palpable. But this is what unbelief does. He, he, he is struggling to see the difference 
between a man who walks into a bowling alley and shoots it up and a person who says, you want to know what I believe? You want to know what my worldview is? Look in the Bible. Mar continues with this. I mean, degree, yes, but it's thinner than you'd think, Mar added. I mean, what in the world? See, these are the people who don't understand Christianity. They don't understand the goodness that is inherent in the Christian worldview. They don't understand the grace of God and how good for society it would be if we applied the truth of His Word. They think it automatically means death and, construct, uh, death and destruction. That's how backward unbelieving thinking is. They can't make the connection between a biblical worldview and the blessing that it would be for society. Even an unbeliever would reap great blessings if you applied biblical truth to society. But no, we're a religious, we're a religious fanatic. One thing that I think merits comment here, he says, there is no room for real democracy. Can I say a couple things on this, if you'll permit me? First of all, America is not a democracy. We're a constitutional federal republic. Okay? We have, we vote in elected representatives who are not our overlords or our kings. They are meant to speak for the people. We are not a democracy. And here's a second thing. Why would we as Christians want a democracy? Two wolves and a lamb deciding what's for dinner? That's what a democracy is, friends. A Christian should not have an interest in that kind of system of government. Democracy. What happens when 50.00001% of society decides that Christianity is bad and needs to be completely eradicated from society? Oh, democracy! (laughs) Here's another way of thinking about it. Regardless of whether we're a democracy or a constitutional republic, we should desire for our nation what God desires for it. We should want the gospel to pervade society so that people believe in and obey Jesus Christ. Now, it just so happens that a constitutional republic is advantageous for that, but it is not a one, it's not a one-to-one carryover. There are, there are, of course, weaknesses in the Constitution, especially if your society ends up being paganized. And I don't know about you, I don't want a pagan society. I don't want, I don't want un- unbelieving society to run roughshod over Christian culture. I want Christian culture to prevail. I want society to bow the knee and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that His Word is the final authority. And if that's what it means to be a re- religious fanatic, then count me a fanatic. Who cares? Once again, we should not be afraid of people who speak this way. Concerned? Yes, concerned enough to speak back to it. But afraid? These are the people who have lost their minds. Once you are completely blind to the goodness of applying a biblical worldview and the and it's all of its itinerant blessings, you are completely blind to, to who God has revealed Himself to be. You are truly depraved in your thinking. And Lord, help Bill Maher to see the light and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, help all who are like him. But once again, we would be like this. We would be like this if not for the grace of God. We would be like this and worse. But this is how a fear of man expresses itself. That any, that any talk of, of God and His law being applied to our own laws, being applied to society. It's like, oh, it's going to burn down. You know, it wasn't Christians burning Kenosha. I'll tell you that much. 
I rest my case on that. Maybe we can talk about it later. But these are people who do not understand God and His power, His grace, or His sovereignty. But this is the fear of man that the commander of the officials uh, brings up. And he says, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are of your own age? So it's like haggard in terms of, it speaks to this a thinness or a dejectedness in your physical countenance. You guys are, are not going to eat the king's delicacies. You're going to be rail thin. You're going to look weak. You're going to look unsightly. And even your faces are going are to tell the story. You're not fit for service and you missed out. And we're all going to die because you defied the king. But Daniel, look at the text again, but Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's like, let's test. And I think Daniel knows exactly what he's doing. I don't think Daniel is afraid. I think Daniel is trusting in God. He's trusting in the living God of Israel. So he says, then let's put this to the test. It's not, it's not unlike Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Let's build an altar. Let's each call on the name of his God. And if Baal answers, he's God. But if, if Yahweh answers, then he is the true God. Like, why are you guys constantly going between two Two opinions, literally. Why are you tripping between the twigs? You want to serve, you serve one God or the other. So whoever answers, that's the true God. And guess what happened? Even after, even in spite of completely drenching the altar, the Lord is faithful and he answers Elijah's prayer so that all would know that there is a God in Israel and his name ain't Baal. So I think the same heart is in view here from Daniel. Let's then put this to the test. We will trust God because that is how important the holiness of God is to me. It is that important that I not estrange myself from being able to serve Him. So it's a test. It's, it's more of an, a test of, of who is the best. What Daniel is doing here, I think, is even putting, putting the very hope of Israel and the promises of God on the line. You think about it, by eating vegetables and water, and it is thought here actually that these are vegetables in their immature form, that Daniel is going to eat seeds and water rather than the choice food and the wine. And of course, if they failed the test, we could reasonably conclude that God's judgment on Israel had kind of reached a finality. And what did God do? This is important because God promised that he would return Israel from exile. And there's all these promises of restoration, a new covenant, a rebuilt temple, like a new, a, a new and holy people. He made a lot of promises. And so if he didn't come through here, boy, he might start questioning those promises. But, God's, but God, as he does, as he always does, he comes through. And it would demonstrate that his redemptive, salvific intentions for Israel were true. They weren't imaginary. They weren't illusory. They were true and substantive. When you look at Ezekiel 11, it says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I have removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, 
Yet I was a sanctuary for them, for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Notice that I was a sanctuary. I was a holy place. I was there with them. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. When they come there, they will remove all of its detestable things and all of its abominations from it. So the Lord is promising to do a mighty work. Not only will I do sort of the external work of, of bringing you back to the land, I will do a heart work, an internal work, where you will remove all of the detestable things and idols and abominations from the land. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, so that they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then I will be, then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Right. So we see this very thing happening, right? It's, it's a, a new beginning where what is described in Ezekiel 11 will be the fruit, will be the, will represent the growth of that. Jeremiah 33, 7 through 9 says similar. We, we understand that the Lord is speaking these things not just through one prophet, but through several. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. Restoration. Promise. Right? Forgiveness. Newness. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth which will hear of all the good that I do for them and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. I think that's speaking to the eventual conversion of the Gentiles. And so this is done in faith. Daniel, For Daniel, this is an act of faith. A rest in the supernatural working of a covenant-keeping God. And Daniel and his friends in this particular situation would be sort of a, a first fruits of a marvelous new work of God in the midst of a pagan empire. So we're looking at seeds seeds and we talked about the newness that that represents not only was daniel eating seeds you think about ezekiel same thing ezekiel 4 9 if you've been in trader joe's i think it is or whole foods he, he, there's something called ezekiel 4 9 bread that's where this comes from uh, but as for you take wheat barley beans lentils millet and spelt seeds put them in one vessel and make them into bread for yourself and you shall eat according to the number of days that you lie on your side 390 days. See, they serve, their, their, their service as prophets overlap. They're, they're prophesying at pretty much the same time. Daniel and his friends are eating seeds. Ezekiel is eating seeds. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, when he, when he is out of his mind and being driven away from Babylon because of his, uh, because of his rejection of God, it was his food as well. So we see seeds everywhere. And I think that goes hand in hand with all the new beginnings we see, right? Seed, it's, we see seed is young food. We see this eaten by young men in Nebuchadnezzar's court who will eventually eat that food. The exile is a sort of wilderness. Seeds are wilderness food. Furthermore, seeds are creation food. This was food for man at creation. So all of this, the point of mentioning all this, is to point to the theme of newness. God's purposes in building a temple. God's purpose in building a house. All this creates to the newness, right? And then we add that to the fact that Israel will be cut off at the stump and from there will spring a righteous branch. All this points to a new work that God is doing. And I think that's really cool to see, to see this pattern woven through uh, the book of Daniel. But God is 
taking not many wise, not many noble, right? He's just being, he's using faithful men to be the first fruits of a new work that he is doing that will culminate in the giving of the new covenant. And so moving back on in our text, uh, let's see, verse 14, so he listened to them. There we go. He listened to them. He was willing to put his own life on the line. Listen to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. And I looked up that word fatter and it seems like the best translation is that they were simply fatter. They had meat on the bones. And this is why I would submit to you that this is a supernatural work of God. It's not just that their food was somehow healthier, but they had some like secret blend that made a great veg- vegan protein shake. I believe that in this act of faith, God worked supernaturally even in their own bodies so that they would come out looking fatter and healthier and better equipped physically to serve. This is why we say true resolve bears fruit. Fruit that endures. And this is the first time I think we see this. Daniel, and by extension God, is vindicated. Daniel is showing that God's way is best. It took trust. It took faith. His very life is on the line, and yet it was vind- he was vindicated because after that test, their appearance was fatter in taking a diet that most likely would relegate them to being thin and perhaps un- unhealthy looking. And yet, God, I believe here, supernaturally preserves them and strengthens their bodies. They are, their resolve is anchored in God's power and God's supernatural working. And so it seems like, hey, says the commander, the overseer, it looks like this works. What you said is true. That you have, you have passed the test. So verse 16, the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables or seeds. So it was better. That's another word. Better. That is common word for good, fair, beautiful. It's the same word used in Genesis when God describes that he, he sees that it was good. It was good, fair, beautiful. And that's how they looked. So the primary application here, once again, I'm not telling you to go, but like this is somehow like the, the Daniel 1 diet. Go home and eat a bunch of seeds and drink only water. Now there's too much good stuff out there. The application for us is to trust God and expect great things from Him at face value. That when we act in faith, we can expect great things from God. And, and I mean, this is something that the church is always struggling to recover or to uphold is a high view of God. I mean, you think about it. If I could say, boy, I wish that this one thing were true of our church. I wish we had a high view of God. I wish we were able to, as a body, expect great things from God. You know, you've heard me harp on this, this sin of treating God like a miser. He has everything but refuses to share. Right? He just wants to keep back from us good things. But I think we commit as much of a sin by treating Him as if He is some kind of pauper. That He's poor. He really has nothing to give us. And so we don't really expect much. And so we don't ask Him for much. And if we do, we don't ask Him in faith. Or, or, or we ask Him so we can use what He gives us to fulfill our own lusts. It's tragic that this has befallen the church in such a profound way. So we must, in reading this text, recover a high view of God. And even when we show up here, expect much from God. Expect God to be here with us in a special way. Expect, expect the means of grace to prevail through word and, and sacrament. To expect great things from each other because the Spirit of God is present with us. 
We have to keep expecting great things from God and to ask Him and to ask Him boldly, knowing that He delights. We read it this morning. All these good things come down from the Father of lights. He delights in His children. He delights to give us good things. And yet we continue to ask so little of Him. We, we, can we, stop it. <laughs> That's all that needs to be said. Just stop doing that and expect great things from God. Because this continues to ravage the church and it creates a man-centered temple of Baal where God needs us and we really don't need Him. Oh Lord, what can I do for you today? Oh Lord, you, you need me. Sorry, I haven't been coming around much. No. Where is that awe and wonder and anticipation of God's grace being lavished on His people. Where's that expectation? And think of the society in which we live. I mean, we're, two, we're, we're 2,600 some years removed from this. Daniel was in exile. He was in Babylon, a thoroughly pagan society. And he expected this from God. We are in the United States of America. We are in a blessed nation founded largely on a Christian worldview. We, we see a lot of those blessings come to fruition because of the practice of Christianity. How much more emboldened should we be since we've seen the fruit of that to come and ask God for great things? To, to pray for one another. To pray for Colorado Springs. To pray for gospel revival. To pray for new disciples. New discipleship opportunities. To pray that God would do a great saving work. And it's like when you think about it and we take inventory of our prayers, how often do we fail to ask God for any of these things? As I've said before, yes, Lord, we thank You for this food. And we thank You for keeping us safe. But there's all these other things we don't pray about. Things that I really believe that God would answer us if we prayed. And we prayed diligently and urgently and faithfully. Such is the example of Daniel. He resolves, to be. his very resolve is anchored in the power of God. He relies on Him. And so look at this. Here we see God's grace again. God's grace. Verse 17. As for these four youths, ah, the story continues. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Oh, what a, what a packed verse that is. God gave them. Gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature. I mean, God did not hold back. See, they passed the test and then as their, as their service continued, he, he, he favored them abundantly with knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And keep in mind, this is Babylonian literature and wisdom. And he gave them the mind to, to understand it. And that's very important. Once again, it doesn't, just because they were in Babylon didn't prevent them from living as true Israelites. It didn't prevent them from being faithful. I mean, we can understand the world around us. Think about medicine. A lot of, a lot of, Breakthroughs have come in medicine from rank unbelievers. And as Christians, we can look at that with a thoroughly Christian worldview and understand it and apply it and be faithful to God who gives us that knowledge. We can be, we're able to, to scrutinize science. We're able to scrutinize so-called human wisdom. And yet we can turn around and be in all these fields and use them for God's glory rather than surrendering them. Oh, that's Babylonian. I don't need any of that. But if the Lord gave him wisdom to be able to have insight, to be able to scrutinize, and even able to think about in a situation like this, 
how can a believer be positioned in such a way to where he can scrutinize that conventional wisdom of the day, that knowledge and literature, and turn it up on its head and use it to point people to the true and living God. And not be dismissive of it or not think, oh, that's going to defile me. Well, it certainly didn't defile Daniel. It doesn't have to, have to defile you either. Daniel even, oh, there's more. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. We've talked about Daniel being the second Joseph. Had insight into visions and dreams that God gave. And going on. So, so again, the point here is that even in a thoroughly pagan society under a pagan king, not fellowshipping, right? They are still set apart. They are, they are equipped for the work of God in a pagan nation. And God has given them abundantly so they have everything they need to be effective ministers, effective priests of God under King Nebuchadnezzar. Then at the end of days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not all not one, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Up oh, there we go. Their identities are intact. They are still Israelites indeed. So they entered the king's personal service. So far, so good. As for every matter of wisdom, listen to this. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. I mean, think about that. I don't think, ten is a number that signifies wholeness, completeness, absoluteness. I don't think he got his like Babylonian abacus and started working the numbers to find out just how much wiser they were. The point is, is that the wisdom that Daniel and his friends held because it was given to them by God absolutely put to shame the wisdom of everyone else who did not get their wisdom and knowledge and abilities from God. You see the application there. What we have from God, even the foolishness of God, as Paul says, should shame the wisdom of man. I mean, would that not ignite a fire under us to pursue God's wisdom? To, to study His Word, to be thoroughly engrossed in it, counting on Him that He will give us the wisdom to understand. If we lack wisdom, ask. Because He is generous. He is good and will give us everything we need. What we know of the true and living God, friends, should absolutely put to shame the unbeliever. The unbeliever comes in, they are cocky, they are arrogant, they think they know something, they think you are foolish, they think you know nothing. But you, but, but take heart. You know what God knows. That should give you overwhelming confidence. You know God and you know what God knows. You see things the way God sees them. That should eradicate any fear of man you may have. What can man bring to the table that can possibly stand up to the wisdom that God gives? And yet we are so intimidated by the unbeliever, usually because of their vitriol and aggressiveness and their attempt to shame us for being so narrow-minded and intolerant. If you're in, who cares if, if, if what you know is true, who cares if it's intolerant? If what you know is true and leads to life, who cares if it's narrow-minded? Right? Don't be so open-minded your brain falls out. Be narrow-minded, but know the truth. This, this should, I mean, I pray that this would be descriptive of us that we know God so well, we know what He knows, that we are found at some point, yeah, ten times better. There's no question. There's no question who the wise guy is here. No question. 
Because God has made a stand and He has given us all the grace and strength and power and ability and fruitfulness to be able to stand in the midst of an unbelieving generation to be tested and to come out on the other side tried and yet as fine gold. Surely we must repent from underestimating God's ability to do that work in us. But it starts with God Himself. The fact that God gives, God strengthens, God preserves, God enables. Even a pagan king could see that. Yeah, you guys, no competition. These, these other people, man, what? Like, these people are useless. And they're my magicians. They're my sorcerers. They should know things. But nope, they were ten times better. Think about that. The Word of God, ten times better. The wisdom it gives, ten times better. It's the ultimate. It stands alone. You don't need anything else. Then all who were in His realm, all the realm of Babylon, these four youths, these four young know-nothings, these naive young men, knew better. So ought we. Verse 21, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. And I think this is where we see the last uh, thread here. That true resolve endures, right? It, it endures in its fruitfulness. That this integrity, this, uh, this integrity of Daniel continued. Daniel just kept doing what he was always called to do. He was faithful. He was steadfast. This is how he continued. Trusting God. And we're going to see that years down the road. Daniel continued until the, final, the first year of Cyrus the king, where he was probably in his 80s or 90s. What a legacy that is. What an example that is. To retain trust in the living God. To see us through all of life's trials, no matter who's in charge. Right? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? Or is it Cyrus? Is it Donald Trump? Or is it Joe Biden? Who cares? God's on the throne. He's in charge. We answer to Him ultimately. So no matter who is in so-called power, we understand that God is the ultimate and God will see us through because He is faithful. Doesn't that sound better than merely just trying to blend in? To be vague, to be adult instrument in the hands of God, but instead to be numbered among His people, to stand in the evil day and after having done all, as Ephesians 6 says, to stand and to not be worthless or useless or estranged from serving God. And this quote by James Jordan, who's been a huge help in my study, says, We should be like Daniel. And set aside the glories of the past, take the lowest seat and look to God. Look for God to form a new world around us. The God who did just exactly that with Daniel is the same God who will do the same with us if we let him. Don't let that let him derail the quote. James Jordan's a Calvinist. All I have to say, may God be blessed by the preaching of his word. And may we be blessed by Daniel's example and ultimately by God's show of faithfulness, no matter the circumstances. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for helping us get through this. Um, we, we understand that You are faithful, but Your grace and power and provision is, is abundant in any situation. And we know that at various times and cultures, there may be different prices to pay, but there will always be a cost associated with following You. There will always be a cost with faithfulness. But that cost pales in comparison to the surpassing glory of having gone through a time of testing to be numbered among Your people. Lord, we want our calling and election to be made sure. We want You to be able to look at us and say, yes, those are My people. Though they may struggle, I am with them, and they will stand after having gone through everything. 
and I will call them my own. Lord, may that be true of us. May we depend on Your grace. May we fall on our knees and cry out for, for wisdom and strength. Lord, to be able to, even in the toughest of times, delight in You, knowing that You are a good God who always shows forth His goodness. May we ask great things of You. May we pray with hearts of faith together and anticipate an answer. Lord, but You are not silent towards Your people. But Lord, if that silence is there, perhaps it is because we are prayerless. Is there, should we expect an answer if we are not asking? Lord, I pray for repentance in this. Some of us really, some of us struggle with this and some people have even stopped the struggle altogether. We are a prayerless church. And I pray, God, that Your grace would multiply, Your mercy would shine through, that we would repent from that prayerlessness that we would be on our knees daily to pray to You, to, to, to be a, a fragrant offering, as it were, to submit ourselves to You as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You, which is our spiritual act of worship, our reasonable service. Why should we hesitate to throw ourselves, to cast ourselves on the throne of grace? Because You are a God who provides everything we need. You are a God in whom all the promises in Christ are yes and amen. And how little we take advantage of that. So please, God, spare us from that. And may we raise our prayers together consistently, anticipating an answer that You would do a mighty work in us and through us, Lord, that we would be a blessing to our city. That Colorado Springs would repent of its wickedness and cry out to the true and living God and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Pray of all this in Jesus' name. Amen.